Section 16 of Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marvin Bonarescu. Popular Lectures on Scientific Subjects by Hermann von Helmholtz. Chapter 6, Part 1. On Academic Freedom in German Universities. Inaugural Address as Rector of the Frederick William University of Berlin Delivered October 15, 1877 In entering upon the honourable office to which the confidence of my colleagues has called me, my first duty is once more openly to express my thanks to those who have thus honoured me by their confidence. I have the more reason to appreciate it highly as it was conferred upon me, notwithstanding that I have been but few years among you, and notwithstanding that I belong to a branch of natural science which has come within the circle of university instruction in some sense as a foreign element, which has necessitated many changes in the old order of university teaching, and which will, perhaps, necessitate other changes. It is indeed just in that branch, physics, which I represent, and which forms the theoretical basis of all other branches of natural science, that the particular characteristics of their methods are most definitely pronounced. I have already been several times in the position of having to propose alterations in the previous regulations of the university, and I have always had the pleasure of meeting with the ready assistance of my colleagues in the faculty and of the Senate. That you have made me the director of the business of this university for this year is a proof that you regard me as no thoughtless innovator. For, in fact, however the objects, the methods, the more immediate aims of investigations in the natural sciences may differ externally from those of the mental sciences, and however foreign their results and however remote their interest may often appear to those who are accustomed only to the direct manifestations and products of mental activity, there is in reality as I have endeavoured to show in my discourse as rector at Heidelberg, the closest connection in the essentials of scientific methods, as well as in the ultimate aims of both classes of the sciences. Even if most of the objects of investigation of the natural sciences are not directly connected with the interests of the mind, it cannot on the other hand be forgotten that the power of true scientific method stands out in the natural sciences far more prominently that the real is far more sharply separated from the unreal by the incorruptible criticism of facts than is the case with the more complex problems of mental science. And not merely the development of this new side of scientific activity, which was almost unknown to antiquity, but also the influence of many political, social and even international relationships make themselves felt and require to be taken into account. The circle of our students has had to be increased, a changed national life makes other demands upon those who are leaving. The sciences become more and more specialized and divided, exclusive of the libraries, larger and more varied appliances for study are required. We can scarcely foresee what fresh demands and what new problems we may have to meet in the more immediate future. On the other hand, the German universities have conquered a position of honour not confined to their fatherland. The eyes of the civilised world are upon them. 
scholars speaking the most different languages crowd towards them even from the farthest parts of the earth. Such a position would be easily lost by a fourth step, but would be difficult to regain. Under these circumstances, it is our duty to get a clear understanding of the reason for the previous prosperity of our universities. We must try to find what is the feature in their arrangements which we must seek to retain as a precious jewel, and where, on the contrary, we may give way when changes are required. I consider myself by no means entitled to give a final opinion on this matter. The point of view of any single individual is restricted. Representatives of other sciences will be able to contribute something. But I think that a final result can only be arrived at when each one becomes clear as to the state of things as seen from his point of view. The European universities of the Middle Age had their origin as free private unions of their students, who came together under the influence of celebrated teachers, and themselves arranged their own affairs. In recognition of the public advantage of these unions, they soon obtained from the state privileges and honourable rights, especially that of an independent jurisdiction, and the right of granting academic degrees. The students of that time were mostly men of mature years, who frequented the university more immediately for their own instruction and without any direct practical object. But younger men soon began to be sent, who, for the most part, were placed under the superintendence of the older members. The separate universities split again into closer economic unions under the name of nations, bursaries, colleges, whose older members, the seniors, governed the common affairs of each such union, and also met together for regulating the common affairs of the university. In the courtyard of the University of Bologna are still to be seen the coats of arms and lists of members and seniors of many such nations in ancient times. The older, graduated members were regarded as permanent life members of such unions, and they retained the right of voting, as is still the case in the College of Doctors in the University of Vienna, and in the colleges of Oxford and of Cambridge, or was until recently. Such a free confederation of independent men, in which teachers as well as taught were brought together by no other interest than that of the love of science, some by the desire of discovering the treasure of mental culture which antiquity had bequeathed, others endeavouring to kindle in a new generation the ideal enthusiasm which had animated their lives. Such was the origin of universities, based in the conception and in the plan of their organization, upon the most perfect freedom. But we must not think here of freedom of teaching in the modern sense. The majority was usually very intolerant of divergent opinions. Not unfrequently, the adherents of the minority were compelled to quit the university in a body. This was not restricted to those cases in which the church intermeddled, and where political or metaphysical propositions were in question. Even the medical faculties, that of Paris, the most celebrated of all at the head, allowed no divergence from that which they regarded as the teaching of Hippocrates. Anyone who used the medicines of the Arabians, or who believed in the circulation of the blood, was expelled. The change in the universities to their present constitution was caused mainly by the fact that the state granted to them material help, but required, on the other hand, 
the right of cooperating in their management. The course of this development was different in different European countries, partly owing to divergent political conditions and partly to that of national character. Until lately, it might have been said that the least change has taken place in the old English universities, Oxford and Cambridge. Their great endowments, the political feeling of the English for the retention of existing rights, had excluded almost all change, even in directions in which such change was urgently required. Until of late, both universities had in great measure retained their character as schools for the clergy, formerly of the Roman and now of the Anglican Church, whose instruction laymen might also share in so far as it could serve the general education of the mind. They were subjected to such a control and mode of life as was formerly considered to be good for young priests. They lived, as they still live, in colleges under the superintendence of a number of older graduate members, fellows, of the college, in other respects in the style and habits of the well-to-do classes in England. The range and the method of the instruction is a more highly developed gymnasial instruction, though in its limitation to what is afterwards required in the examination, and in the minute study of the contents of prescribed textbooks. It is more like the repetitoria which are here and there held in our universities. The acquirements of the students are controlled by searching examinations for academical degrees, in which very special knowledge is required, though only for limited regions. By such examinations the academical degrees are acquired. While the English universities give but little for the endowment of the positions of approved scientific teachers, and do not logically apply even that little for this object, they have another arrangement which is apparently of great promise for scientific study, but which has hitherto not effected much, that is, the institution of fellowships. Those who have passed the best examinations are elected as fellows of their college, where they have a home and along with this a respectable income, so that they can devote the whole of their leisure to scientific pursuits. Both Oxford and Cambridge have each more than 500 such fellowships. The fellows may, but need not act, as tutors for the students. They need not even live in the university town, but may spend their stipends where they like, and in many cases may retain the fellowships for an indefinite period. With some exceptions, they only lose it in case they marry or are elected to certain offices. They are the real successors of the old corporation of students, by and for which the university was founded and endowed. But however beautiful this plan may seem, and notwithstanding the enormous sums devoted to it, in the opinion of all unprejudiced Englishmen it does but little for science, manifestly because most of these young men, although they are the pick of the students, and in the most favourable conditions possible for scientific work, have in their student career not come sufficiently in contact with the living spirit of inquiry to work on afterwards on their own account and with their own enthusiasm. In certain respects the English universities do a great deal. They bring up their students as cultivated men who are expected not to break through the restrictions of their political and ecclesiastical party and, in fact, do not thus break through. In two respects, we might well endeavour to imitate them. 
in the first place, together with the lively feeling for the beauty and youthful freshness of antiquity, they develop in a high degree a sense for delicacy and precision in writing, which shows itself in the way in which they handle their mother tongue. I fear that one of the weakest sides in the instruction of German youth is in this direction. In the second place, the English universities, like their schools, take greater care of the bodily health of their students. They live and work in airy, spacious buildings, surrounded by lawns and groves of trees. They find much of their pleasure in games which excite a passionate rivalry in the development of bodily energy and skill, and which in this respect are far more efficacious than our gymnastic and fencing exercises. It must not be forgotten that the more young men are cut off from fresh air and from the opportunity of vigorous exercise, the more induced will they be to seek an apparent refreshment in the misuse of tobacco and of intoxicating drinks. It must also be admitted that the English universities accustom their students to energetic and accurate work and keep them up to the habits of educated society. The moral effect of the more rigorous control is said to be rather illusory. The Scotch universities and some smaller English foundations of more recent origin, University College and King's College in London, and Owens College in Manchester, are constituted more on the German and Dutch model. The development of French universities has been quite different, and indeed almost in the opposite direction. In accordance with the tendency of the French, to throw overboard everything of historic development to suit some rationalistic theory, their faculties have logically become purely institutes for instruction, special schools with definite regulations for the course of instruction, developed and quite distinct from those institutions which are to further the progress of science, such as the Collège de France, the Jardin des Plantes, and the École des Études Supérieures. The faculties are entirely separated from one another, even when they are in the same town. The course of study is definitely prescribed, and is controlled by frequent examinations. French teaching is confined to that which is clearly established, and transmits this in a well-arranged, well-worked-out manner, which is easily intelligible, and does not excite doubt, nor the necessity for deeper inquiry. The teachers need only possess good receptive talents. Thus, in France, it is looked upon as a false step when a young man of promising talent takes a professorship in a faculty in the provinces. The method of instruction in France is well adapted to give pupils of even moderate capacity sufficient knowledge for the routine of their calling. They have no choice between different teachers, and they swear in verba magistri. This gives a happy self-satisfaction and freedom from doubts. If the teacher has been well chosen, this is sufficient in ordinary cases, in which the pupil does what he has seen his teacher do. It is only unusual cases that test how much actual insight and judgment the pupil has acquired. The French people are moreover gifted, vivacious and ambitious, and this corrects many defects in their system of teaching. A special feature in the organization of French universities consists in the fact that the position of the teacher is quite independent of the favor of his hearers. The pupils, who belong to his faculty, are generally compelled to attend his lectures, and the far from inconsiderable fees which they pay flow into the chest of the Minister of Education. 
the regular salaries of the university professors are defrayed from this source. The state gives but an insignificant contribution towards the maintenance of the university. When, therefore, the teacher has no real pleasure in teaching, or is not ambitious of having a number of pupils, he very soon becomes indifferent to the success of his teaching, and is inclined to take things easily. Outside the lecture-rooms, the French students live without control, and associate with young men of other callings without any special esprit de corps or common feeling. The development of the German universities differs characteristically from these two extremes. Too poor in their own possessions, not to be compelled, with increasing demands for the means of instruction, eagerly to accept the help of the state, and too weak to resist encroachments upon their ancient rights in times in which modern states attempt to consolidate themselves, the German universities have had to submit themselves to the controlling influence of the state. Owing to this latter circumstance, the decision in all important university matters has in principle been transferred to the state, and in times of religious or political excitement, this supreme power has occasionally been unscrupulously exerted. But in most cases, the states which were working out their own independence were favorably disposed towards the universities. They required intelligent officials, and the fame of their country's university conferred a certain luster upon the government. The ruling officials were, moreover, for the most part students of the university. They remained attached to it. It is very remarkable how among wars and political changes in the states fighting with the decaying empire for the consolidation of their young sovereignties, while almost all other privileged orders were destroyed, the universities of Germany saved a far greater nucleus of their internal freedom and of the most valuable side of this freedom than in conscientious conservative England, and than in France with its wild chase after freedom. We have retained the old conception of students as that of young men responsible to themselves, striving after science of their own free will, and to whom it is left to arrange their own plan of studies as they think best. If attendance on particular lectures was enjoined for certain callings, what are called compulsory lectures, these regulations were not made by the university, but by the state, which was afterwards to admit candidates to these callings. At the same time the students had, and still have, perfect freedom to migrate from one German university to another, from Dorpat to Zurich, from Vienna to Graz, and in each university they had free choice among the teachers of the same subject, without reference to their position as ordinary or extraordinary professors or as private docents. The students are, in fact, free to acquire any part of their instruction from books, it is highly desirable that the works of great men of past times should form an essential part of study. Outside the university, there is no control over the proceedings of the students, so long as they do not come in collision with the guardians of public order. Beyond these cases, the only control to which they are subject is that of their colleagues, which prevents them from doing anything which is repugnant to the feeling of honour of their own body. The universities of the Middle Ages formed definite close corporations, with their own jurisdiction, which extended to the right over life and death of their own members. 
as they lived for the most part on foreign soil, it was necessary to have their own jurisdiction, partly to protect the members from the caprices of foreign judges, partly to keep up that degree of respect and order within the society, which was necessary to secure the continuation of the rights of hospitality on a foreign soil, and partly again to settle disputes among the members. In modern times, the remains of this academic jurisdiction have by degrees been completely transferred to the ordinary courts, or will be so transferred, but it is still necessary to maintain certain restrictions on a union of strong and spirited young men which guarantee the peace of their fellow students and that of the citizens. In cases of collision, this is the object of the disciplinary power of the university authorities. This object, however, must be mainly attained by the sense of honour of the students, and it must be considered fortunate that German students have retained a vivid sense of corporate union and of what is intimately connected therewith, a requirement of honourable behaviour in the individual. I am by no means prepared to defend every individual regulation in the Codex of Students' Honour. There are many middle-aged remains among them which were better swept away, but that can only be done by the students themselves. End of section 16